Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another special staff edition of Inside LBUSD, the Laguna Beach Unified School District podcast. This episode features a new conversation between our CTO, Mike Morrison, and Dr. Sonny Magana about his latest book, Learning in the Zone, Seven Habits of Meta-Learners. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one and take a lot of fantastic ideas into the classroom for your students. And now, Mike Morrison and Dr. Sonny Magana. I'm excited to be here today with Sonny Miganya, who has written several books uh, that are visionary books on technology and learning and learning in general. Um, his first book he wrote with Marzano, and it's called Enhancing the Art and Science of Teaching with Technology. His second book was Disruptive Classroom Technologies, which covers the T3 framework, which many of you have uh, studied. And his latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is called Learning in the Zone, Seven Habits of Meta-Learners. And when Hattie read this book, he said, Sonny Magana has become the Eddie Van Halen of learning. <laughs> so we're excited to have Sonny with us. Welcome. Uh, rock and roll. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> uh, it's great to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. We're excited to have you. We, we wanted to zone, to kind of zone in, zone in. <laughs> on the learning in the zone and yeah. really study uh, a few aspects of the book today and maybe encourage some people to go deeper in their meta learning journey. So, um, Sonny, I know the first one is all about commitment. Can you kind yeah. of explain the theory behind the, the idea of committing to learning? Yeah, sure. That's the first meta learning habit. And uh, I'll say this uh, uh, by way of kind of you know um, setting this up. A habit is something that we develop over time, and I think that's really important to recognize that you know, humans are we're creatures of habits. We're we're creatures of habit, I suppose. We 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 like habits. We we develop routines. We're comfortable with those routines, uh, and we don't like to stray out of our routines too far um part of it is because you know it's routines are things that we do with a level of automaticity we don't really have to think too much about it you know what i mean so i i think that's an important distinction between a strategy and a habit however i'm making the case that i think habits can be learned through intentional practice yes and that intentionality of the practice comes with a strategy that somebody implements and tries um, over a period of time until that strategy morphs into a habit that we do without a whole lot of heavy thinking, with a higher level of automaticity. So learning in the zone, would that be a point where all where many of these habits are being practiced without right. without effort? So right. you've gotten to a point where you've you know you've had the practice and now it's like just automatic. This is the way I learned. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With a, and uh, and I want to make a distinction here because it's a subtle shift, but it's important. Automaticity doesn't mean that we do it unconsciously. <laughs> you know, uh, having having automaticity is not unconsciousness. Now, I'll give you an example. Uh, most people have ever learned how to uh, ride a, or drive a stick shift, a manual transmission. It takes a lot of effort at first. Um and then over time and practice, and you kind of get used to these routines, your brain is actually creating neural networks. 
and strengthening and thickening those neural networks as you shift from first to second pop. You know, use your clutch and your your brake and your gas pedal, and over a short period of time, all those strategies become habitual, and you can drive the car without a whole lot of thinking. So it it creates you have a level of automaticity doesn't mean you're unconscious it means you're not expending a lot of your mind share to focus on that practice and instead can focus on the road ahead and what you're doing the context in which you're driving well i think learning is works in a very similar way um when students develop strategies to the point where they're so familiar with a learning strategy that's effective for them, um, they can implement that strategy uh, with a level of automaticity and can focus more deeply on the content they're learning. And that's where kind of a deeper learning shift happens when strategies are applied in the process of um, over time, um, making them habits. And so these seven habits, and, and you nailed it, they're, they start off as strategies, but over time, and with ample feedback, ample opportunities to provide feedback, those seven habits kind of close in on the zone of optimal learning for each of us. And we can learn anything to high levels of mastery and and performance. After reading the book, I tr tried to practice these habits with a new learning activity I was doing. Mm -hmm. And the feeling I got, there's a couple of feelings I got. One was almost stepping outside myself and reflecting down. So like that mm -hmm. feeling of like thinking about what being intentional about what I was doing and knowing what I was doing and why, which was an interesting feeling as I was learning. And then a little bit of feeling of power, like yeah. that I had control over this process when in the past you might just be doing it because that's the way you've always done it, you know? Mm -hmm. And, right. and so this way you were, it was really an honest reflection on like, how was I learning? What was I doing? Which I think was good. Um, that first step though, I think was critical with commitment. So let's, commitment. let's zone in on yeah. commitment. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, the commitment part is, um, uh, is something we don't spend enough time uh, developing with students, you know, making a commitment. And, and I think a commitment is, is um, stronger than just making a statement or having a goal. You know, it's one thing to establish a goal, which is really important, don't get me wrong, but it's even more important to commit to realizing that goal come hell or high water, nothing's going to stop us from realizing that which we commit to. Uh, and um, I think it's important to recognize that um, when a learner makes a commitment, it's like a promise they keep they make to themselves. And it's something that they keep in their hearts and their heads. So just the process of making a commitment galvanizes uh, our resolve and connects our heart space with our head space in a way that just doesn't happen without the commitment. So in a classroom, a teacher maybe has like a driving question. Mm -hmm. Would this be more of those bigger questions that you would see this done with? Like, yeah. you know, a student knows that they're studying a certain topic and they make a commitment to discovering more about that question. That's right. Discovering more about that question, and and uh, I think I think essential questions are are, are a really important way um, to stimulate cognition, you know, to stimulate our our interest because questions demand an answer, you know, 
questions demand some response. So it's it's really a provocation. It's an invitation. Um, the other thing students need to know is what is the learning that they're going to achieve? What What's the learning outcome? What's the intention cognitively and even emotionally uh, for the knowledge that students will gain as a result of pursuing and resolving an essential question? So it's that piece that students can commit to is what am I going to know as a result of going on this journey? What am I going to be able to do? And what is my thinking journey that takes me there to uh, some new understanding or new skill or strategy? When students commit to that outcome, that learning performance, whether it's a skill or knowledge that they can declare, um, then it unleashes this force of nature inside of us to strive for mastery as opposed to just jumping through the minimum hoops, you know, going through just doing as little as possible to achieve proficiency. A commitment leads to mastery. I was thinking about like in our district, we do walkthroughs where we walk through Mm -hmm. classrooms. And one of the things that I noticed is, um, certain students know exactly what's going on. Like they, they're, they're just like with it, they're right there with it. And then, you know, you have some students that really kind of are just doing it because it was told they were told to do it. So I think what this would do is it would get more, uh, there would be more students if they committed to the learning Mm -hmm. that knew what the intent was, what they were trying to do. So there would be like, a kind of a motivational or momentum in the classroom that might not be there if they didn't commit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm glad you went through this experience uh, reading the book. And that's really kind of how I designed it for, for anybody to pick it up, learn about each habit, and then implement it right away into some pursuit that's meaningful for you. Um, so when students, when any student, when any learner really wants to learn something, they really want to acquire some new knowledge or new skill, the commitment is, it's like an, it it creates an energy. And so uh, let me explain what what I mean by that, because it's not just creating an energy, it it actually um, creates tension. Here's what I mean by that. If students know, any, any learner knows what the learning outcome is, with real clarity, there's no ambiguity. They know what the learning outcome is and what they want to do or be able to perform. That helps them understand where they are right here and now. What is their current state in relation to that learning intention? Humans have the amazing ability to hold two opposing thoughts in our mind simultaneously. So, so like cogn- those, cognitive dissonance a little bit. Create, like, that's right. So that, and the, the, the urge is to kind of fill that in, like trying right. to, you know, as a human, like we want to fill that gap. So that's, that's a, that's a good way to think about this. Are they also reflecting on what will happen in the end? When does that come about? It, it, I think it's important that students, um, think about what they'll be able to learn or, or be able to do and how they're going to celebrate their success. Cause that's something we don't do nearly enough of is celebrating success. Once we, once we climb the proverbial mountain of knowledge, how are we going to take that all in and relish that moment and relish that success? So it, it sometimes is helpful for students, not just to hold those two opposing thoughts where I am now and where I want to be, that creates this sort of, you know, cognitive tension that demands resolution. 
we're compelled uh, to resolve that tension. I think it's just human nature. We 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 need closure. And so it compels us forward. And if we know what we're going to do to celebrate, we're working towards that. We keep our eye on the prize, as it were. Um, it, that also is highly motivational. One of the strategies that has the highest effect size in Hattie's uh, research is students predict grades. Uh, can you describe like what he was dis- what what that means, and how does it fit into your habits? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a a really powerful strategy, which can become a habit. In fact, the second habit is that students engage in self-regulation strategies uh, to uh, really understand their growth and their progress towards that learning intention. Um, to which they've previously committed. So you got to start with commitment, starts with, you know, with the learning intention, and then they need to uh, have uh, structures, scaffolds in place um, to determine uh, and s- their own assessment of growth. So the strategy is called self-appraisal. And okay. self, when students are able to appraise their own growth and assess how close they are coming to the learning intention, that has an effect size 1.33. I'm going to say that again. Self-appraisal is such a huge thing. All we, it's, and it's subtle. This is a subtle shift to help students learn how to self-assess. Self-appraisal has a, an effect size of 1.33, now, which I re- is more than tripling learning. Ironically, when I visit classrooms, it's not one that I see often. Do you? Are you seeing it when you visit out classrooms? It's often hidden from you. Okay. Um, but, and so but part of what uh, Professor Hattie's work is, uh, uh, is so remarkable because we want to make things visible, making learning visible. The self-appraisal strategy is making the learning about one's own assessment visible, mm-hmm. both to the learner and to the teacher. So it's it's often just you got to scratch the surface a little bit. Um it's easy to do. Just give kids an opportunity to use um, uh, uh, some tools to measure their growth towards their their intention. So um, it's it's not as used as often as it as it could be or even should, should be. be yeah. You know. So I've developed a tool called the Magadia Mastery Tracker to assist in the process of helping students self appraise and figure out which strategies work for them at each phase of learning at the translational learning transformational learning transcendent which is really surface learning deeper learning and then the ability to transfer that knowledge in a new context as they as students develop better strategies to self-regulate their emotional state and their effort and the strategies that they use they they can then use a, a scale i developed called the magadia mastery scale to determine, okay, how close am I to mastery? Am I there? Am I able to, you know, demonstrate, model, and communicate conceptual understanding? Not making any errors, not leaving anything out. Or that means you're a three. If you're a two, you're close. You're still making some errors. You still, it's a little fuzzy. You're not quite there yet, but you're well on the way. You're kind of like the midway point of the mountain. Or are you just starting out your journey? So just that scaffold alone of having a three, two, and a one. Three means I, I'm able to demonstrate that I'm on target. Two is I'm progressing towards the target. One is I'm just starting my progress towards that learning intention. How do you feel students are about their assessment of themselves? Are, you know, are, they, 
are they really honest about this? Like how do, how do, how do, do they need to get, do they learn to get better at it? it exactly. It, it's, it's a learned skill. It's a learned skill, but too often students rely on someone else to tell them how they're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's where the gap is. If you're waiting to, to hear how well you're moving towards the learning target, it's already too late. Students so, need to develop that, that, that skill and it is a learned process. So what are your thoughts on why this is so uh, effective? Like what, what are the, the reasons behind this? Like the, you know, what does this do for students that the other strategies don't? Um, well, you know, when, uh, barring from the world of, of cognitive psychology and, uh, you know, Bloom's taxonomy and Maslow's hierarchy, you know, these are, these are really powerful structures. Um, and I would say that when students uh, learn how to self-assess, they, they have to engage in some form of self-reflection, right? Mm-hmm. So when students become more self-reflective, they gain greater self-awareness. They're aware of their own processes and skills, their limitations and their strengths. That self-awareness is a really powerful force um, that all of us have the potential to develop. And it leads to greater self-determinism. Self-determination is that wonderful state where, as learners, we know how to set ever more challenging goals. We're confident in our ability to achieve those goals, and we are confident in the strategies that we've learned to achieve those goals. So self-reflection leads to greater self-awareness. Greater self-awareness leads to greater Mm self-determination. And greater self-determination leads to greater self-actualization. Yes. Where we learn to realize our potential. That's a powerful process. Yeah. One of our goals in our district is to create empowered learners. Would that mm-hmm. be, would this be one of those traits where you'd say this is right on that, right on Absolutely. the Absolutely. Right in the pocket. Yeah. Right in the pocket. When we're self-empowered, we, we, we have efficacy. We have belief in ourselves. So uh, I have an ongoing bet with Professor Hattie about something called uh, collective efficacy. Because John's work um, is, again, it, it, it's the foundation for so much of what any of us in education research do. Um, so we all owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to Professor Hattie. Um, at the moment, the strategy with the highest effect size is called collective teacher efficacy. Yes. Where that has an effect size of 1.57, um, which is extraordinarily large. That's, that's, a, that's equivalent to quadrupling learning. That's like four additional years of learning in a single year. Collective teacher efficacy is the happy place where every teacher in a system, whether it's a school, a district, a grade band, uh, a PLC, every teacher in some cohort believes that they can and will improve student learning by engaging in a strategic approach to improving learning. So the bet I have is that is this. I think there's a concept called um, collective student efficacy. Yes. When every student in a classroom <laughs> or a school or, uh, or a district or a grade band believes they can and will become meta learners, learning how to learn, learning to be contributive learners to their, their peers, to uh, folks outside of their grade band, either you know higher grade band or lower grade band. They, they believe they can and will improve learning for everyone. I think that will have a greater effect size because there are more students. 
there are more of them. There, you know, there's, there's just a, a kind of a, a numbers game. Um, and the T3 framework strategies sort of speak to that because uh, we found effect size of T3 at 1.6 and higher. Mm-hmm. And this is work that I did with Professor Marzano or, or Dr. Marzano, uh, where you know uh, the T3 uh, uh, strategies have an effect size of 1.6. We saw effect size of 2.0, even 3.0. That's like so gargantuan, but I think it speaks to where we want to go to develop collective student efficacy. Um, and that is really when we have a bunch of empowered learners that are contributing to the learning and well-being of everyone else in their sphere. And if you it's think about idea. the it is incredibly powerful. Think about the idea of like the momentum and the um the culture that creates in a school. Sure. It's very powerful. And individually I was thinking the, the individual student's social emotional health probably is greatly impacted if they feel that power of that, Absolutely. that empowered learner. It's probably yeah. one of the, the best things we can do for our students. We feel content when we are engaged in some challenging pursuit. We believe in our ability to be successful, and then we celebrate that success. It creates a chain reaction of continuity that is sustainable. Hey, Sonny, you told me a story once that kind of um, reflected some of that idea of like what would happen, what's your kind of goal or your vision of what would happen um, with a soccer yeah. uh, student of, that was studying soccer and like working on soccer skills. Yeah, uh, you know, that celebrating success. Like, and it doesn't have to be a, a physical celebration. It could be a thought exercise. It could be uh, uh, something in, intrinsic. So I was working in a, um, a high-needs school in um, uh Eastern San Diego County, uh, work with a, with a, a group of students. And I, I asked them this question, how do you learn? How do you engage in surface learning where you're learning new words, new facts, new ideas that you have to commit to understanding? And the students thought about it for a moment. And then one student had an idea and then they all kind of chipped in and I captured all these wonderful strategies that they do. And then I said, okay, now what do you do to celebrate when you achieve that goal, when you memorize, you know, have that, that surface level knowledge that you're, you've uh, acquired? And one student said, well, I love my, my dad. I was a, a, a young girl and she said, I love my dad and I don't get to see him very much. So in my mind, we love to play soccer. I love to play soccer with my dad. So when I make my goal, when I achieve my goal, I celebrate by imagining that I'm playing soccer with my dad and I score a goal and we're both really happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and a that's good visualization. Beautiful. Yeah. That's yeah. really good. And I will, I will admit to you, my goal for my learning, which I haven't finished yet, I'm still doing uh-huh. my learning log, is I want to share my log with you. And my picture was mm-hmm. like you smiling at my log. So, <laughs> so that, that was my like vision of like, I, I would, I would hope that you would be like, uh, you thought you would think that would be a, a neat thing. That's awesome. So. Uh, see, it's just that it, it can be very subtle, you know, c- celebrations don't have to be big, parties with pizza and movies and you get the afternoon it could be really subtle in fact sometimes the more subtle the celebration the more powerful it is not all the time but sometimes that happens and so when we uh give ourselves some moment to stop and reflect on the journey 
and celebrate our achievement, several things happen. It nurtures our cognitive mind because we provide closure to the gap between what our learning intention is or was and what our um, starting point was. It closes that gap. That is motivational. And intellectually, we know that um, uh, we, we get a sense of, of withness or, or efficacy, like, yes, I can learn. But it also nurtures our emotional mind. It, it nurtures the heart space because the human brain is remarkably adept at releasing neurochemicals that make us feel good. So when we celebrate success, even that, that image of uh, somebody smiling and that, you know, the, 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 the joy that comes with that, your brain is going to release oxytocin, endorphins, dopamine, serotonin, a mixture of those four, you know, uh, neurotransmitter uh, chemicals um, that make us feel good. It so that I think is an evolutionary um, experience that compels us to establish a new goal mm-hmm. and continue the process. So committing to to some learning intention with a clear indication of what how you'll celebrate when you achieve that that commitment is a really powerful, intrinsically motivational experience. That's that all humans have that capacity. It's absolutely, innate. absolutely. I love that. Let, uh, let's look at number three because I think it really dives into more of the way you need to approach situations with, with you know, your brain power. Yeah, and that is mm-hmm. like you're connecting this new learning to past building blocks right. that you have. Yeah. So how do you how do you practice that habit and how do you what describe that habit? Sure. Well, you know, all these habits i kind of developed as a a youngster learning how to play rock and roll music you know in fact in the story i tell it's a narrative i'm I'm explaining how i learned how to learn how i learned how to unlearn and how i learned how to relearn you know and that's what i call meta learning meta learning is the process of learning how to learn unlearn and relearn and it's really about developing these habits keeping the habits that are effective chucking out the habits that are that are not as effective and replacing them with new habits i think that's a that's a a really powerful way to for us to consider what learning is so um when i learn a a a new song when i was learning how to play songs um uh, i would um uh build upon what i already knew like all new knowledge is constructed on a foundation of knowledge that we have consolidated or actualized. Lev Vygotsky talked about this beautifully, and, and you know, his big uh, inspiration for me. We have this, think of the accumulated knowledge we have as like a sphere. If you can just imagine, like all the knowledge we have is in a big sphere. That's our actualized knowledge sphere. That's what we know how to do, what we know, what we're able to accomplish. That all exists, and that's the foundation upon which all new knowledge is constructed. Now, successful learners, meta-learners, are very intentional about leveraging their past knowledge experience as a scaffold to help them understand new learning problems. Math teachers out there are going to know what I'm talking about because, you know, mathematics is built, it's, it's logically scaffolded. 
reading teachers know what I'm talking about. The the, the, the stages of uh, uh, building phonemic awareness and learning the reading skills all build upon themselves. In fact, I, I think that could be said of, of, of um, uh, most areas of knowledge. Um, it's there's an articulation. It's a journey, and everything is connected. In fact, John Dewey, uh, in his wonderful uh, work on uh, education and democracy, came up with this principle of continuity, which is a really powerful idea. The principle of continuity goes something like this. All of our experiences have an accumulation effect. So in this moment right now, where we are, that's a function of all of our prior experiences that connect and um, uh, create a nexus of where we are now, and it extends into the future. So there's this continuity of learning from past experience, present experience, and how that affects future experience. Meta-learners are more intentional about taking prior knowledge and applying that prior knowledge as a learning tool. Mm-hmm. to understand so, current and future learning problems. So as a teacher to get kids into that habit, would yeah. you would you be like very intentional about like asking questions like how does this connect to things you know in the past or like would students have a um would you have a technique that teachers could use yeah. to get kids into this habit? I do. Uh, and in fact in um in the book, I, I've got uh, QR codes for learning tools that are scaffolds, like digital scaffolds that help with this process. And one of the scaffolds that uh, folks can get to, just go to uh, magandiaeducation.com and click on re, uh, free resources, um, and it accompanies the, the book. One of the tools is a KND chart. Um, now, people are familiar with other charts, and uh, it's a graphic organizer. The KND chart stands for what do I, what do I know, what do I need to know, what am I going to do? So know, need, and do. So it's very active and action-oriented. Um, and it's a way for students to use a Jamboard, which is a really powerful tool to write down all the knowledge that they've acquired um, for, as it relates to a certain unit of study, for example. Um, write down the their new terms that they've learned, the new facts that they've learned, the new ideas that they've learned, and organize them. Mm-hmm. Organize them into some sort of categories that make sense to the learner. That not just activates prior knowledge, it helps them leverage that prior knowledge to understand new learning. And that's the difference between, you know, just like activating prior knowledge and using it. So the KND chart helps kids organize their thinking and then make connections to what the prior knowledge, actual, actualized knowledge units are and how those, those knowledge units can help them understand current problems by looking at similarities and differences, creating extensions, creating connections, and then analyzing them uh, in, in a way that shows the product of their, of their thoughts. It, uh, Jamboard allows kids to create knowledge artifacts. So then they can go to the next step. Well, what do I need to do? What strategies am I going to do to understand this new problem? Does that make sense? It does. And I think, uh, um, students and we all do this as people are speaking we're connecting it with things we know because yeah. you have to i mean there's no other way to to listen and absorb things but being intentional about it and writing it down and kind of you know making sure it becomes a habit i think is a, is a good um, process so i like that yeah it's like when we when we create a knowledge artifact it represents what we know or how we think or what we can do 
if we organize those knowledge artifacts, like those little post-its in, in Jamboard, and then organize them in some way, it'll, it, that's deeper learning. That is, in fact, deeper learning when you're organizing your knowledge experiences into some sort of superordinate and subordinate categories, higher order and lower order categorization. Outlining is, is, a, is a really powerful way to do that. But if you can move those objects, you, you actually are kind of manipulating your own thinking in a way. And that helps you better understand what, what needs to be done to solve a current learning problem. Let's uh, let's think about number f the fourth one, which I think is the most fun because uh, when you work with people, you you generally are more engaged, you know. And the fourth one has to do with being, yeah. uh, you know, having active participants in that journey of learning and um, and and structuring that so that you're you're all moving up together. Um, do you have an experience or anything that drove you to kind of think about this? Yeah. Path. Yeah. You know, uh, again, learning how to how to play rock and roll music was I didn't have a teacher. You know, I, I grew up, uh, you know, in a, in a relatively from meager means. We were we were impoverished. Um, we were, um, you know, we, we didn't we had uh, the basics, but not much beyond that. So, you know, I used I got my dad's old Sears and Roebuck guitar from the 1950s, I think, and started learning how to play music. So I was leveraging, I committed. That's the first thing. I really wanted to learn how to play these songs. So I, I made a commitment. And that with that commitment came the discipline of practice. You know, so I committed. I really wanted it. If you want to play guitar, anybody who's ever, you know, worked on any, any musical skill knows it's, it's it's hard work. You got to really want it. And then I was using my past knowledge of other songs and other chord structures, and then ultimately scales and different um, modes of of uh, uh, scales um, to bring to bear on some current learning. And that was great as for me as the individual learner, for me learning how I learn. But what was even better is when I would apply that learning with others. So I quickly joined a little, you know, a band, a skiffle band with, you know, mm -hmm. these guys from high school. And and in that process of showing it, I learned that I had something of value to share with people who I thought knew a heck of a lot more than me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, that I'd like awakened the possibility that, oh, maybe I know something of value that I can share with somebody else. And so we just had a little kind of contributive learning group and we'd meet, you know, during lunchtime and after school, uh, in the high school, uh, um, uh, uh, gymnasium or, or outside or on the, the, the playing field. And we just have our guitars and, and someone would say, Hey, I learned this new chord and they show us and, and we try it. And then it, we all benefited from the collective experience. And that's the fourth habit is to engage in contributive learning groups, which is a very natural process outside of the classroom. I think it needs to be brought into the classroom where students are teaching each other what they know about the learning that they're engaged in so that somebody who may you know, uh, not think they know as much um, when engaged in a conversation with their peers, they might realize they know more than they think they know. Mm -hmm. And it and it sort of solidifies and clarifies understanding in a way that just simply consuming information just doesn't. I think teachers could uh, facilitate this 
pretty easily by doing something yeah. like a jigsaw method. Yeah. Um, that would be an easy way to facilitate this process where kids are studying different aspects of a topic and then coming back together and sharing. I mean, that's, that, that's one way to practice this, right? It's a powerful way. Jigsaw is one of the few, uh, I'll call them a, 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 you know, a mega strategy. It's a mega meta strategy because Jigsaw really has kids teaching their part of a whole to the other members of their group. Um, it is the one of the few strategies that has a very high effect size across all phases of learning, across the translational phase of learning, the transformational phase of learning, and the transcendent phase of learning. So it's a, it's a really powerful way to get kids to um, organize themselves into small, into expert groups that teach each other. Absolutely. It's really powerful. And you know, one of the other things you can do is just, it's a simple strategy. Give kids time to discuss new content and engage in, in dialogues. Five minutes. Just take, after introducing some concept, let kids discuss it and create some product, some representation of the knowledge by having a discussion. In fact, one of the things we can do to really improve learning outcomes is shift classroom conversations from monologues to dialogues mm -hmm. and let kids just take some time, think, reflect, Think about how the new learning relates to something they've experienced in the past or some other experience outside of the classroom and just have a, a conversation. That is a really rich learning experience that really supports contributive learning. The fourth meta learning habit. Awesome. Um, Sonny, thank you for coming today to this podcast or, or participating in this podcast. We're excited about uh, the work you're doing and we think uh, this this could have a tremendous impact on students in the way they think about their learning. So yeah, well, I listen. I'm, it's a privilege. So thank you very much for inviting me. I always enjoy our conversations, Mike, and I hope everyone uh, finds something of value uh, from uh, our time together. I think they will. So it's a, really a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this special staff edition of Inside LBUSD. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to Mike. And as always, we hope you have a great week.